It's good to be back in Acts as we move forward. We are in Acts chapter 9, and we are now at a point in the book of Acts in the story that Luke wrote. The point in which in the book that we're at is now where we've already surfaced over two individuals, two Christians who already were able to help bridge the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles. But in setting up and preparing the way for that, we still needed to hear more about what Philip did and what Stephen did. Stephen was the one who, in Acts chapter 7, uh, verbally challenged not only Saul, but was also in the midst of helping uh, all those among the Sanhedrin of the Sadducees understand the implications of the gospel and the fact that they had always rejected the Holy Spirit, always rejected God. And then we moved into chapter 8. Because Saul approved of the execution of Stephen, you encounter, what you encounter then is the dispersion and the persecution as a result of killing Stephen. Now remember, we all know that you cannot kill the gospel. You cannot silence the gospel of Jesus Christ. It just won't be silenced. You can put people in prison. You can torture them. You can murder them. But ultimately, the movement of the Holy Spirit and of the gospel, it won't die. You, No human hand can kill the message of Christ. And so what we come to in chapter 8 is where Philip takes the gospel to Samaria. So the Samaritans. And they hear the gospel Again, they had seen Jesus. Remember in John chapter 4, Jesus had encountered the woman at the well, Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And she had told her that I am the Christ. I am the Christ of God. Uh, And now we hear Philip taking the gospel to a, a principal city of Shechem in Samaria. And the Samaritans finally hear the gospel. And the apostles arrive to confirm the word. And the Holy Spirit descends on this new group of individuals. So the two key individuals, remember Stephen and Philip, of the Christian faith, who had left Jerusalem, or part of Jerusalem, excuse me, Stephen especially, but Philip, who helped lead the way, bridging the gospel from the Jewish mission to now the Gentile mission. But what we're needing is we're needing who are the two key individuals who will not be the bridgers, but who will take the gospel. And now we finally come to Saul. Because you've seen Saul already, whom we know as Paul. You've seen Saul already, already in chapter, basically in chapter in chapter 7, or excuse me, chapter 6, where Stephen, at the end of chapter 6, Stephen has been silenced by a mob. But before that, he has been debating individuals from the same place that Saul was from. Now what we can infer... It doesn't mean it's actually there, but what we can infer is that Stephen probably outwitted, outsmarted, and knew more than even Saul. And was able to handle the scriptures better than Saul was because Stephen knew that they all pointed to Jesus. But Saul, in his hard heart, his unbelief, would not believe in that. So Saul's also there in chapter 8 and verse 1 where it says Saul approved of his execution. So we know who Saul is. Saul is someone who is adamantly opposed to the Christian faith, adamantly opposed to the gospel, 
and would love to see nothing more than the gospel being squashed. And so in chapter 9, as we come to chapter 9, we'll, we'll, we'll learn more about today uh, the conversion of Saul and what true conversion is. So one is today I want to cover two things. What is conversion? And the second thing is what does conversion look like? Now, everyone in here has a story of how they came to know Jesus Christ. If you came to know Jesus, if you haven't come to know Christ in your own heart and life, then that's another thing, and we definitely will hit on that. But the idea in Acts is that every case or every situation or every individual who came to know Christ, it was different. It looked completely different. So God doesn't move on a one-fits-all scale. He moves in his own way, in his own timing. All of us have our own story. But our story is in the gospel. We need to remember that. Our story, our testimony is in the gospel. So if somebody says, have you ever shared the gospel? Well, I've shared my testimony. That's not the gospel. That is important to know how you are changed by the gospel, but your story is subjective. The gospel is objective. In other words, something outside of you, outside of every single one of us, had to change us and mold us into the person we are in Christ. But the gospel is the objective point. And so as we think about what the gospel is, we need to remember that the gospel is objective. In other words, it changes us. We don't change the gospel. So when we say, I shared my testimony, you're sharing an aspect of being affected by the gospel. But when we share the gospel, we need to share what Christ has done for us in our place for our sins. So the conversion point here of Saul, something we need to remember here is that... The gospel will either soften or harden the heart. That's the effect of the gospel. Chen Kilgore says the gospel will either soften or harden the heart. You either become more hard to the gospel or you'll become soft towards it. And that's the work of the spirit. And that's the mystery that we can't explain uh, in God, in Christ, in the Holy Spirit is how God works. We just can't explain that. Only God can. But we know, we know from what the Bible says what God does in his spirit when he does work and move. And so we see here in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1, we come back to Saul. So it says in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So what we want to do is we want to read a bit and, and talk a bit today and then read a bit and talk a bit. So first thing we come to is what I would refer to as human resistance to conversion. Uh, the human resistance to conversion. So there's three things. One is the human resistance to conversion. Jesus, who is the one who causes conversion. And then what are the effects or should I say the results of true conversion? So the human resistance to conversion. All of us are opposed or at one point opposed to God. Romans 3 is very clear about this. When you look at Romans 3, it says... For no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, in verse 10, all have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Not even one. So there's not one of us who does good. We're all opposed to God. I think the big question some people ask is, well, I, 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 I chose God. I chose the things of God. I chose him. And I understand what you're saying. And there is the free will aspect in that. But your will, your free will is bound according to your nature. Romans 8 is very, very clear about those who are in the Spirit do the things of the Spirit. Those who are in the flesh do the things of the flesh. So if you are in the flesh, which at one point, if you're in Christ, that was all of us, you're in the flesh, completely in the flesh. There's only one thing you said, and Romans 3 confirms that, which is there's no one good, not even one. We've all turned away. No, we all said one thing. No. So when did we say yes to God? It's when the Spirit of God softened our heart because of what God has done in Christ. And we were then able to say yes to the gospel. And if you're in Christ, now you can say yes. You still say no to God many times because of sin. But you're able to say yes to God. Yes to the things of Him. And choose to be a follower and disciple of Jesus. So now we have what's called our our will... According to our nature now is in the spirit we've been freed to choose freely Jesus. But before we were bound only to our sin. And so Saul here it says still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for it. So Saul he did not choose Christ. Saul was very much opposed to Christ the Messiah. Saul was extremely angry that the guy that he killed, basically Stephen, and was dragging other Christians into prison, he could not silence this movement. This was a movement of God. And as we see here, Saul had already uh, he had already parted company with Gamaliel, uh, who cautioned, remember, in uh, Acts chapter 5, the members of the Sanhedrin, not to find themselves in a, a part of a movement that was opposed to God. So he's only interested in destroying and murdering Christians, trying to destroy of movement. You know, one of the things that makes uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, of the Taliban, and uh, a very much an extreme Islamic movement, so, uh, so much of a movement is that uh, you cannot, um, because it's, so, it's not centralized so much, it's so decentralized that people can become a part of this thing at any given moment or time or period because you cannot kill it. You can't. You can't kill this movement. It's, it's just this strong ideology that's inbred in, in, in their thinking and what they do, and it involves everything about their whole life. That's why you can't destroy it. And Paul, in this time of period was trying to kill the Christian faith, but not realizing that the gospel affected every single aspect of the disciples of Jesus. That's kind of what makes the Christian movement so significant, is that the gospel can break through any culture or language barrier and transform that culture or language by the gospel. It doesn't take away the distinction of the culture or the language, but it transforms that cultural language, that redeems that cultural language or people by the power of the gospel. So Saul, uh, he's got these thoughts because he says here in verse 1 and 2 that he's going to the high priest asking for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. And he's got this idea, if I can 
gather them all together, all the Christians, and consolidate them, I can destroy them in this one rounding sweep. Now in Damascus, this is an old principal city here. Uh, goes back all the way to the time of Abraham. And at this point in time, there's probably around 20,000 uh, Jews living in this version in Damascus. But the letters to the synagogues in Damascus were probably letters of introduction and what we might call extra, extradition, uh, extradition, if you want to say. Uh, this city right here of Damascus, it was, it was realized by Paul to be very strategic. In a sense that uh, if he did not enter in and move right there at that point in time, he knew that there was going to be no other greater opportunity than that point, than to go ahead and round up all these Christians. He knew, Paul knew, I have to eliminate this movement. And that's why he went to the high priest. And of course the high priest is sympathetic. But he's trying to find all those who belong to the way. And the way was an early name for the Christian community. If in your translation, the way should be capitalized, uh, signifying the fact that this was a title given to those who belong to the early Christian movement. So we see here just the human uh, resistance to conversion. We see how uh, Saul was a God-hater. He, he hated this God-ordained movement by the Holy Spirit. And I think we all know people like that. We all know people who just hate Christianity. They hate people talking about Jesus. They hate, maybe it's your workplace or people you know about in certain relationships. They hate God. They may not even come out and say that they hate God, but they'll hate the way you live. They'll hate the fact that you'll say that Jesus Christ is the only way. That is an exclusivistic gospel message. That only through Christ can you come to know God. It's not that there's many ways to God and that we're all traveling on different paths on the mountain. At the very peak is God and we'll meet him one day. It's that the only way to God is not on a journey up the mountain, but God in Christ coming to us and redeeming us. And the only way to God is through Christ and his message. And narrow is the path. So Paul, you know, an individual who was trained in the Hebrew Scriptures, knew about what was going on, just did not uh, find himself sympathetic at all to the message of the gospel. And his heart was hard. He was choosing one thing, no. And that's all of us. And so now we come to verse 3. It says, uh, as he's going on his way to Damascus... Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now, imagine yourself in his shoes. You're traveling with your companions, and you've got one mission, and you've got one mindset, and you're on the one pathway to Damascus, and a light from heaven flashes around you. You're probably thinking that the sun is shining brighter than it normally is, but that's not the case. It says, a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, verse 4, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in verse 5, he says, who are you, Lord? Now, Saul, Saul, the name repetition in Aramaic would mean that there's obviously a figure or voice talking to him that's divine. And that would represent by the, the two times his name being repeated. 
This light, I, I, we're, not, we're not talking about some natural sunlight here. Or we're not talking about just this uh, normal light that they could have experienced. This is a very much a divine experience that Saul's, uh, Saul is experiencing. And he knows that there's something very unusual happening because it says in verse 5, he responded, him responded, I'm Jesus, the person who's saying to Saul, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. So here Saul's only response is that of curiosity. And in the supernatural event, he asks, who are you, Lord? The recognition that there's a higher authority than Saul himself. He's seeing himself lower finally. He's now in a position where he's not the one in charge. He's finally in a position, a state where the Lord had to put him down, where uh, he had to be told what you're actually doing is wrong. What you're actually doing is against me, against me alone. And Jesus responds and gives Saul instructions about what he's to do with the revelation. Now see here in verse 6 or 7, the men who are traveling with him stood speechless Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So all the men heard the voice. They didn't understand where it was coming from. But they didn't see the light. Because hearing the voice, but seeing no one, Saul rose from the ground. And although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. This was the holiness. This is a holy encounter. This was the holiness of God in Christ. Blinding Saul. This is not the only case where we find uh, individuals, particular individuals, experiencing the particular revelation of God in his Shekinah glory. I mean, this had to have been a Shekinah moment where Paul encountered the risen Savior like no other. And obviously, spiritual experience is taking place in the life of Saul. And he's finally responding with pause in his heart and in his life. And his spirit is encountering this. Uh, divine moment. Oh. Now look at verse 8. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they, meaning his companions, led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Okay, so we come to the part here where Saul begins to experience the majesty of God in Christ. Jesus being the true cause of his conversion. And then he's now experiencing a moment where he has to process what's happening. He has to uh, take it all in. And so for three days, he's in Damascus. He's at the house of Judah. And he's neither eating nor drinking. Now, psychologists, pop psycholo popular psychologists, will love to explain away his conversion this way. Uh that his physical body and psyche were damaged by just nervous excitement about all that was happening. That when his opposing views that he is opposed to took root in his life, he could do nothing really in responding to the new behaviors and indoctrination, what they call brainwashing. So they assume that Paul was really brainwashed into this movement. And I tell you, friends, it was not a moment of brainwashing. This was a moment of the Spirit of God working in, in Saul's life. And the person we know and recognize in Acts is Paul, was Saul who Saul, who was persecuting Jesus Christ, was now beginning to become a follower of Jesus. And the true conversion happened because Jesus was at the cause of it. 
you have to know somebody who was totally adamantly opposed to God, who's now a follower of Jesus right now in your life. The only thing you can explain away is not because of your good argument or your good evangelism, but because of the Spirit of God working in that person's life. And we just pray for um, the country of Iran, and we should pray for the Prime Minister of Iran. Um, I believe his name is Prime Minister Abinajab. And we should pray that he comes to know Jesus Christ in his life. He's always... I don't know if I've ever read an article that talked about him in his dialogue with anybody that hasn't said, uh, we accuse the Zionist regime or the people who follow Jesus or these Christians. I have never yet heard an article where he hasn't uh, blasphemed some nation for following Jesus Christ or some people or anything like that. I mean, this man is very much opposed to Jesus Christ, to the Christian way. There are also many figures in other nations who are opposed to the message of Jesus Christ, and we need to pray that God saves them by His Spirit and by His hand. So Jesus is the true cause of conversion, as we see in verses 3 through 9, and we see how Saul responds to the gospel. But now what we're seeing is the conversion experiences in Acts, such as when Saul, are so varied that it's difficult to label them as such what we call brainwashing. This is something that we can't explain away by rational arguments or um, just by unbelief, but except by the grace of God. So now we're seeing here in verse 10 through 19, not just the Jesus being the true cause of conversion, but we're seeing the varied effects or should we say consequences of conversion. Consequence not meaning a punishment, but what we're talking about is a result of conversion. When you come to know Jesus Christ, there is a result that happens. And so in verse 10 we see, Now there was a disciple at Damascus. So there's already people who are following Jesus at Damascus named Ananias. Now this is a different Ananias. This is not the one in Acts 5 that we found who... Uh, lied about the sum of money given to the apostles. This is a different one. This is someone who actually really truly loved Jesus, who gave truthfully from his own goodwill. And the Lord said to Ananias in a vision. So this could have been a dream. This could have been him daydreaming in the afternoon. Um, I don't know, looking out the window. Or maybe he was you know, taking a soneca or taking a nap. But the idea is that he saw in a vision God speaking to him. And he said, Hear my Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. Here's another case of an individual who waits upon the Lord, who's waiting for instructions. And God says, Go and rise to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. So Saul is praying now. He's asking God in Christ to reveal what he should do with the revelation he received on the road of Damascus. And Ananias is now receiving a vision. And it says, Go to the house of Judas, look for the man Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. He's seen you, Ananias. Come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So Ananias receives a vision. He's told to go to Saul and lay your hands on him so that he might regain his sight. 
Okay, so this is another one of those moments, just like in Exodus 2, where Moses is at the burning bush, and Moses is told to go and lead the people of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land, and Moses has a lot of excuses. So that's not the first time we've heard of people making them excuses for not wanting to follow Jesus. Well, Ananias has the same kind of disposition in his heart at the beginning. Ananias answers, Lord, I get it, but I've heard from how many this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias says, I get it, but I've heard about this guy. Are you sure you want me to do this? And the Lord says to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the name, for the sake of my name. So there's your three reasons why God says to Ananias, go, because he's my chosen instrument. He's supposed to go to the children of Israel and the Gentiles. And the third thing, I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer. So it's not so much in a morbid kind of evil, kind of sinister way that God's saying to Ananias, I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for what he's done to my people. But he's saying, I'm going to show him how much of a chosen instrument he is. So you go and be obedient to me and help prepare him. Basically, what God is calling Ananias to do is God's calling Ananias to go and disciple Paul, Saul, in the faith. And Ananias doesn't want to do it. You can tell. Because he knows the physical danger. But as a follower of Jesus, we're called to go and disciple those who were at one time opposed to God. But I believe God is calling us to go and disciple those who are opposed to God right now as well. Because in the scriptures of Matthew 28, it says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. He's not saying, Go and make, therefore, disciples of those who come to know faith. The Bible says, Go and, therefore, make disciples. When You can make a disciple at your workplace, where you're at, even if they have not confessed Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God. You can do that. Because you're discipling them. You're teaching them the ways of Christ by how you live and through what you say. And Ananias is basically called to discipleship here with Saul. It's the same thing if you were asked to go and disciple the prime minister of Iran. I want you to go and disciple that individual in the faith. Now, there might be more, need to be more of a strategic way in doing that, but I believe it could happen. So the task of Saul... Or Paul, as we know, is made clear as he comes to know his mission is to the Gentile peoples and to the children of Israel to be a chosen instrument and to know how much he is going to suffer for the name. Uh, Saul, or Paul, should we say, later in 1 Timothy 1, 12-16, he knows how much of a chosen instrument he had become in God's service, but knowing also as well how much he didn't deserve it because it says... I thank him who has given me strength to Christ our Lord because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love there in Christ. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 
of whom I am the foremost. It's the same thing that John Bunyan repeated later, many years later. He said, I'm the chief of sinners. And so the idea here is the point of the gospel is to confound the wisdom of the Greeks and smash the so-called signs of the Jews. In 1 Corinthians 1, 22-25, Paul later writes about the power of the gospel in Christ. And that Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we can say, why would God save uh, Saul from his sins? Why would God use Saul? Well, one individual writes, Paul was a Jew who had been thoroughly trained in the Old Testament scriptures by Gamaliel in Jerusalem. That was the one thing. He grew up in a Greek-speaking environment, so he spoke Greek. He spoke Aramaic. He spoke three or four languages. He was familiar with the Hellenistic culture. In other words, those Jewish, uh, Greek-speaking Jews. And he knew how to interpret the gospel in terms of the Hellenistic world all over. But beyond that, he was a Roman citizen who realized and understood all the networks and roads and infrastructure and knew how to travel well. This is a guy basically was among the who's who among the elite travel businessmen, um, entrepreneurs who had the degrees of degrees, triple rogue scholar, the guy who had it all together. And it was very rare to know someone who had that big pack, all those packages together wrapped up in one person. And Saul was that guy. And God knew. And there were many reasons. But beyond that, God knew that this individual could make a direct impact among the Gentile-speaking world. And like other apostles, Paul possessed the power to perform signs and wonders. As the apostles received the gift of the Holy Spirit, so did Paul. Paul proclaimed the same gospel the apostles proclaimed. And at last, with the rest of the apostles, he became interpreter of the gospel. That's why he was considered one of the apostles. So Ananias goes to the house of Damascus. So as we see in verse 17, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So he goes to the house in Damascus where Saul is staying and places his hands upon Saul with the kind words of brother. I mean, that just had to be a confirmation. If you're blind, you're sitting in a house, you really aren't sure of what's going on because you can't see. And then someone puts their hands on your shoulders and says, brother, regain your sight. Just a confirmation that he not only found his identity Not in something against God, but for God through Christ. He found his identity in Jesus and then wasn't finding his identity in the community of believers. So he wasn't just this estranged individual. He found his place and purpose in Christ and then in community. That's why I say all of us have been saved for salvation and then for community of faith. Uh, We want to know and experience the mercy of God and we experience that daily through believers. Uh, That's why this 
this family is here with us because they're searching for a community of faith to be a part of where they could be loved and love others. That's what draws us as believers. We're drawn to people, each other. We get psychological and physical energy by being around people, being in community with other people made in God's image. Being around God's image is a good thing. And Saul is beginning to understand, instead of destroying the image of God, I'm beginning to understand what it means to be in the image of God and being saved and redeemed. And so we see here another reason the apostles and acts affirming the work of the Holy Spirit through the laying of hands. And so Saul is baptized after the fact that he receives the Spirit. So I want to comment just very briefly. I know I did this earlier a couple sermons ago, but the Holy Spirit does not come in a second baptism. It comes only in the converting first baptism. So let me explain, because I, I said in the very beginning, what is true conversion? And what does that look like when Jesus does that through his work? How does the Holy Spirit apply that to your life? The Holy Spirit begins to work and move. We don't know how this, the mystery of the Holy Spirit, it's a mystery to us, how the Spirit moves and works. But we know the effects of the Spirit, and we know the power of the Spirit. But do we know who the Spirit is saving at this moment? We don't, individually, specifically. But we know God is doing that through His Spirit. So what happened to me was the Spirit was prayed uh, to by other believers, such as my mom and dad or other individuals, that God would save me by His Spirit. The Spirit softening my heart to begin to understand the things of God. So, for instance, questioning about what being a Christian is, what salvation is, why God had to come through Christ to save people, mankind, in my place for my sins, what the importance of the resurrection. God softening my heart through the Spirit. So that's the washing of our hearts through the regeneration, what we call regeneration. So re-understanding, uh, redeeming our hearts by the Spirit really beginning to comprehend and begin to not only just accept the things of God, but really desire the things of God. And the Spirit washing our hearts, baptizing us with what God has done in Christ, and then calling us, the Father calling us through the Spirit's work to, uh, to Him through salvation. So to put it more simply, God calls us through the Spirit to be His children, to be disciples of His Son. Can we do that on our own? No. That's why Paul wrote Romans. Basically a theology of salvation in that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot choose God on our own. It's impossible. It is literally impossible because then it would negate the Spirit's work all by himself. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens when one's heart is washed by the Holy Spirit to understand believe the gospel. And to know the scriptures and what they mean. That's why we pray, Spirit, open the eyes of individuals, even particular ones, to understand the message of salvation. So they might, in turn, repent and believe. That's why in Ephesians 2, 8-10, through 10, Paul calls repentance a gift of God. It's a gift to repent. So Ananias, he places his hands on Saul, and scales fall. And he then is connected to the mission of God through discipleship. 
And discipleship begins with Ananias. And so we see here uh, just another one insight that we, if we take a step back and look more uh, fully at what's happening here. Ananias isn't an apostle. He's not uh, what we call a special individual in the scriptures here that uh, is, I would say, like a layman or clergy. He's... A disciple of Jesus who's disciple another individual. So what we can know here is that if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ and you're following him and then you're seeking to make other disciples, we believe, or at least I do, that any person who is discipling other people can baptize other individuals. There's nothing in the scripture that says only the pastor or only the clergy or only the ordained minister can baptize. That's something that was, uh, through tradition, was a custom that was allowed through the unordained church members to minister the rite of baptism and has prevailed through centuries. But in most churches, primarily, I, th- I think of others, reform persuasion, this practice has been discontinued of basically laymen who are disciples, who are baptizing, baptizing other individuals. Today what we see is mostly just pastors and ordained ministers doing that. But we don't see in the scriptures in Acts where only pastors and ordained individuals or much less only men can baptize. Those who are called to discipleship, who are in Christ, who are believers, who are discipling, who carry the responsibility and the bulk of the discipleship, I believe the scriptures are saying that they have the ability and responsibility and the privilege of discipling that individual through baptism first and foremost. And so I don't want to hit any chords of a traditionalism or I don't want to um, uh, cross any lines of trying to offend anyone uh, by saying that. All I'm saying is the scriptures do not say only men can disciple and only pastors can disciple. And scriptures are very clear that those who are followers of Jesus are called to go and make disciples, baptizing. So I think that applies and believe that applies to women, baptizing and discipling other women. That applies to laymen, baptizing and discipling other laymen. And there's many ways that can be fleshed out so as to not necessarily preserve traditionalism, but to preserve order in a sense. So... I think there's some gospel reasons for changes we close. One is the application that we're all one time, one time against God and opposed to His gospel. All of us were at one time opposed to the message of the gospel. Second thing is only through Jesus Christ can the Holy Spirit convert and save the hearts of man. Despite all our good efforts for loving the individual through words and action, only the Spirit of God can still save. A third thing is that those who are in Christ have a new identity and purpose. And if you are in Christ, you have a new identity in in His salvation and a new purpose, which is in God's mission. Participating in His mission for His purpose and for His glory. So, let's remember that this week, that we are all one time opposed to God. I think this past week I was thinking about how corrupt our own nation has become in so many ways or is becoming. And then I thought about where I live now and how corrupt it is here in so many ways. But 
I think about the only way that I can truly understand how corrupt people are is to understand how corrupt I am in my own heart still. Uh, even as a follower of Jesus, we still have sin we have to work through and ask, to have, ask God, help me understand how corrupt I am in my own heart. Because that's the problem. It's not a set of laws that will change individuals. You cannot legislate morality. It only, can only happen by the Spirit of God working in the individual's life to, uh, to, for where we can find mercy. And then we can begin to pray for individuals that we know are politically corrupt or uh, just have the uh, appearance of corruption. We can pray for them in ways that we can relate to because we're hitting at the thing that's most important. That's corruption of the heart. That we're all one time opposed to God. Just like those who are living their lives opposed to God. But now... If you're in Christ, you've been saved by His mercy. So let's remember that this week.